Keywords in Play. You're listening to Keywords in Play, an interview series about game research supported by Critical Distance and the Digital Games Research Association. As a joint venture, Keywords in Play expands Critical Distance's commitment to innovative writing and research about games, while using a conversational style to bring new and diverse scholarship to a wider audience. Ruberg, we're very happy to be speaking to you at the moment. Could you introduce yourself in your own words? Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I am a scholar of gender and sexuality in digital studies and um, digital culture, but my specialty is on queer issues in video games. I work at the University of California, Irvine in Southern California. I just moved into a new position here in the film and media studies department, which I'm super excited about. A lot of the work that I do is really trying to bridge academia with game making practices and academia with activism and organizing. So for me, those things are kind of all tied up together. We're going to be talking a bit about your book, Video Games Have Always Been Queer, which is definitely feeding into those things you've just talked about. One of the interesting things in talking about this book is that it seems to be bringing queer theory, queer studies into proximity with game studies, but what you actually end up doing is way more complicated than that. I mean, many people may think that the goal of queer game studies is to identify and think about queer characters or themes in games, but you argue early in the book that we need to go beyond this model of representation. Yeah, so I think you're totally right that the argument is not just about bringing queer people into our conversations about games, but going beyond that and thinking in queer ways. So that's not something, that kind of basic premise isn't something that comes from me. That's really the foundation of queer theory and queer studies. So in academia, we talk about LGBT studies as the study of individual LGBT people or communities. And then queer studies is much more about um, thinking about ways of desiring or ways of knowing things that kind of shake up what we call heteronormativity, the quote unquote normal way of being a person with gender, sexuality, things like that. So you're totally right that the goal of the project is to argue that when we look at video games, um, it's not enough to look for LGBT characters. It's kind of traditional diversity representation. We should be thinking about how games can subvert our ideas about gender and sexuality and desire and intimacy, and that that's a much more meaningful way to look for queerness in games than just this kind of like inclusion checkbox of LGBT people being represented. You have done that kind of work, though, which is to bring ideas from key academics like Sedgwick and Miller to apply them to video games and this kind of like reading them in a queer way. But those academics are talking about films and novels. How would you say that this way of crossing forms and disciplines influences your work? Yeah, so um, you're absolutely right that the project kind of, in some ways, is trying to lay the groundwork for other people to take up this work and keep doing it. Like, I don't think about this book as being the book on queer theory and games. I think about it as kind of like showing some examples of how you could do this work with the hope that other people will take it in new directions. 
because of that, I look at some really classic queer theory texts like Eve Sedgwick's Between Men, D.A. Miller's writing on um, Hitchcock's film Rope, and try and show how we can put these things in dialogue with video games. So in part, the reason that I use texts that are about film and literature is that's kind of where queer theory has been. The kind of foundations of queer theory come from looking at queerness through other media. This is kind of like, here's where we've been, and now let's springboard into where we're going. The other piece of it is that my training is in literature. So I was a tech journalist for five years. Then I went back to grad school, and my PhD is in comparative literature. So my training is in looking at media through critical theory and, and looking at texts. So for me, that's kind of the, it's like the lens that I bring to doing these kind of queer theory readings of games. One of the things that comes out of this project is a querying of the term that a lot of people will be familiar with, which is gamification. Gamification, I guess, is often associated with completing a game or beating a game or skilling up the subject in a particular kind of a way. But you add some extra terms that maybe do some some interesting work here, which is like degamification and regamification. Can you talk a little bit about what those mean? Gamification, folks probably know this term. I think about it in terms of um, things like in the workplace or with uh, apps for exercise and uh, self-care where you try and take these everyday things in life and gamify them. So add levels to them, add point systems. And I think it's a really problematic concept because I love games. I have nothing wrong with games coming into our day-to-day lives, but the way that gamification tends to be used is to encourage people to buy more products or to work harder. And it uses those things that we love about games to, to really exploit people. And that's not that's an argument that lots of people have made. So for me, what I think about is how queer games can challenge gamification. Like you said, I think in the book about this idea of de-gamification. What would it mean instead of taking something and gamifying it, to take something that already has game-like qualities and to break those down? So it's a term that I first started thinking about because of uh, Andy McClure's work. So Andy McClure does these really amazing, messy, glitchy, playful, um, algorithm-inspired pieces. Um, I think of her as, as kind of a new media artist. And it's something that she brought up that she was thinking about that I've then kind of taken up and thought about. So um, there are a lot of queer games out there that break down the games that are already around us. So in the book, I look at this this game that I love, which is called Realistic Kissing Simulator, which was made in 2014 by Jimmy Andrews and Lauren Schmidt. And it's a game that has no goal. So it's just two faces on a screen, two players, and you have these long floppy tongues and you just lick each other and like, <laughs> poke each other. And it is really big on consent. Um, it has no points. It has no levels. What I love about that game is the way that it takes kind of the game of sex or the game of dating that you're supposed to do really well, you're supposed to like be the best at, and it just strips all those game elements away and makes it really freeform and playful. But then I'm also interested in how queer games might re-gamify something. What I mean by that is instead of trying to gamify something to make it better or make you more productive, a game might turn something into a game to show you how it was already problematically game-like. 
So let me tell you an example. Um, Naomi Clark's game, Consentacle, this is an amazing tabletop game that is about sex between an alien and a human. And it has all these super gamey elements. So it's got like tokens for intimacy, points for pleasure. And when I first played that game years ago at Indiecade, I was like really confused because I love Naomi's work. And I love the idea of this like super queer game about like a gender neutral person and sex with an alien. But I was like, do we want to turn intimacy into tokens? Do we want to like turn pleasure into points? And I've talked to Naomi about it over the years and she was like, no, that's the point. The point is to demonstrate how even in queer communities, in queer relationships, we still have this gamified attitude towards sex and pleasure. So for me, that re-gamification is actually a critical move. It's a way to, to demonstrate, to like make visible the things that are already problematically game-like. One of the most interesting concepts, I think, in the book is this idea of chrononormativity and the way that you draw on some seminal, well, not seminal, but like kind of really important queer theorists like um, Halberstam and Freeman. Can you talk a little bit about what chrononormativity means, where it comes from, and what these theorists have meant to your projects? So the idea of chrononormativity, like you said, comes from Elizabeth Freeman, who's a queer theorist. Um, and uh, chrononormativity is the idea that we have normative cultural ideas of time. Normative just means our kind of cultural concepts of what's normal or what's standard. So we might think about normative ideas of gender identity or sexual orientation. But chrononormativity is the idea that time and temporality are really closely tied to heteronormativity. So like, let's say um, there's a certain timeline you're supposed to live your life based on, uh, and it's often tied to sex and gender. So like, you're supposed to hit puberty, then you're supposed to start dating, then you're supposed to get engaged, then you get married, then you have kids, right? But actually queer folks, trans folks, often we do those things in the wrong order, or we don't do them at all, or legally we are prohibited from doing them. So queerness is uh, really tied to not fitting that chrononormative timeline. So Elizabeth Freeman talks about this, Heather Love, Jack Halberstam, a number of um, big queer theorists. That's how the idea exists outside of games. And in a way, you're bringing proximity of this idea to something that's very interesting. And you, you talk about the idea of failure, or you queer the idea of failing in games as filling in time in a new sort of a way. And one of the most interesting ways you do that, I think, is in taking something that a lot of people would consider a very masculinist discourse of speed running, this kind of like conquering, turning the space of the game or the possibilities of the game into something that is completely realizable. How do you queer speed running? It's a really good question. And it's funny, as I've been talking about this book in the uh, roughly a year since it came out, to me, this is like one of the real sites of complexity and messiness in a way that um, I think is really productive. Like, I think it would be bad for me to say, oh, yeah, speedrunning, you know, speedrunners don't tend to think of themselves as queer, which is true. They don't tend to think of their community or their practice as queer. But, oh, yeah, I'm telling you it's queer. Like, it's not that simple. 
the interpretation matters, but also how players think of their own practices matter. And also it's, there's something that like is a little, you gotta, I don't know, is like a little off about looking at what is still a very straight, very male community and saying, this is where queerness lies. So I've been thinking a lot about how these things can all be true at once. Like how this can be a queer way of playing, but also a site of trouble. So Donna Haraway has this idea of staying with the trouble, kind of looking for these points of tension and complexity, and instead of trying to fix them, you know, sitting in them and letting them be things to think through and things to think with. So it just it's just to not exactly answer your question, but to say, I think it's a good question because it is actually complicated. And the complication, I think, is one of the things that's most valuable about it. And uh, are there any speedruns in particular that you think exemplify this? Or is it, is it something that's kind of inherent to the practice of speedrunning? The basic idea in the book with speedrunning and chrononormativity is that games have their own sense of what's normative in terms of time, right? Like we have a sense of playthrough times, especially with AAA titles. If you go to buy something, you're like, is this worth the playthrough hours? Speedrunning doesn't work that way, right? They try and go fast. They also do really interesting things with space, moving through space at the right amounts of time by jumping through spaces and glitches, like tons of super interesting practices. And so speedrunners are kind of messing up or taking a queer approach to the way that time is supposed to work in games. So that's the side of it that I think you can really compellingly read queerly. But then it's, um, I keep finding myself coming back to speedrunning in my work and I want to stop. <laughs> but there's something that I find fascinating. So I wrote a piece um, a couple years ago now on people who speedrun Gone Home because Gone Home is such a like slow, contemplative game. In theory, it's about queer topics. It's totally a thing in the speedrunning community. When you speedrun, there are different types of run you might do. But for one type of run, you can speed run Gone Home in like 20 seconds. Wow. <laughs> it, was, it was super fascinating to think about this game that um, is queer in its content, is queer in its form. It's supposed to be about like meandering around this house, right? And yet speedrunners can bypass all of that. And they do it. It's super fascinating when you watch the, the runs. They do it by going as straight as physically possible. Like literally when you're walking in space, it's about creating the straightest possible line. And so what does it mean to have this queer game that's being straightened, like literally straightened by speedrunners? There's so many interesting things they're doing, but it's like really, I think, productively in tension with queerness. Yeah, and I think that that question of how do we go beyond content or form to get, I guess, something philosophical, which is what you're you're doing. And there is an easier segue to this question of walking sims as an example of queer space and time in games and this idea of stalling the dominant that I think sits in that chapter in a really interesting way. Could you talk about like how walking sims figure in the book? In the same chapter as uh, where I talk about speedrunning, I talk about walking sims as, in some ways, two sides of one coin. They seem kind of like opposite. Speedrunning practices are about going super fast. We associate them with um, a kind of like mastery that's very male-coded in games culture. You have to be super good at games. There are all these cultural associations that come up with that. 
And then walking sims are often about very different kinds of stories. We associate them with like diversity in games. So often the most famous walking sims are about women or queer people or people of color, generally people who are marginalized. But to me, they have a lot in common because they're both about different ways of playing with uh, how we move through time and how we move through space in games. So the fact that walking sims, quote unquote, don't look like games. I mean, I'm not saying they are or aren't games. That's not the interesting thing. It's interesting to me, the cultural discussions around walking sims and the fact that people debate whether they're games because what those games are about is is just moving, right? And often moving comparatively slowly through time, through space. So that part of the book looks at that as its own kind of queering of the chrononormativity of games in their form, right? That it's not, again, about seeing LGBT people on screen, that some of them do have those characters. It's about creating, designing game experiences that resist the way we think games should move through space and time. One of the best things about talking to you about this stuff is that it makes me realize that queer studies in many ways puts everything at play. So it's in some ways the purest game studies. You know, it's an interesting form of game studies because we have for so long had this ludology narratology divide in game studies, which I understand most of us just want to get past. But I think it's still relevant in that it is the like underpinnings of our history in game studies. And there's still a lot of debates, even if people don't use those terms, there's a lot of debate between whether we should talk about platform and form or whether we should talk about representational content and cultural meaning, as if those two things are opposed. And for me, what queer studies does is it shows us that those two things are not separate. You know, I'm not as interested in representation. I'm interested in design. I'm interested in computational tools. I'm interested in that stuff that underlies games but it has direct implications for the cultural meanings and issues of who belongs in games. So I kind of love that queer studies is the thing that bridges those two, two sides of game studies. Thank you so much. Where can people find out more about your work and the work of others you recommend checking out? I am super big into cheerleading for other people. It has just meant the world to me as a person and in my career to build a community around queer game studies. <laughs> when I was a grad student, all of my faculty members told me this is a bad thing to study and I shouldn't do it. Um, and building a community has, has made all the difference. So a couple places. There is an event that runs annually called the Queerness and Games Conference, or QGCon for short. We're now in our sixth year. It's going to be in Montreal at Concordia in May, May 23rd and 24th, 2020. And it's a really an amazing event. It tends to be about 300 people and a really nice mix of academics and game makers and activists. So definitely a kind of hybrid space. So if you want to go play, we have an arcade, we have presentations, we have workshops. If you want to go play or make or learn about queer games with 300 awesome queer people for a weekend, totally check that out. And yeah, and beyond that, Twitter is a really helpful place. Um, so I am at my own Valoria on Twitter. Valoria is V-E-L-O-U-R-I-A. And just, it's a nice space for um, promoting each other's work. Um, so it's a good, good place to keep an eye out. I have um, a new book that comes out this spring, um, spring 2020. And in some ways it's kind of the companion book to the one we've been talking about. 
So the new book is called Queer Games Avant-Garde. And the one from last year is called Video Games Have Always Been Queer. And the idea in the new book is to really focus on the voices of queer and trans game makers. So whereas the first book was much more about how I read and interpret games, as someone who really values queer games community, it felt important to me to also have a project that wasn't about really first and foremost what I think. It's about all of these amazing people who are out there making these like scrappy, radical, experimental queer games. So the project uh, includes interviews with 25 queer and trans game makers. They're presented as profiles, so people talk about their work. But, you know, I really wanted to get beyond this kind of standard diversity narrative of, like, queer people make games now. Games are getting better. Um, So instead, they were these kind of long-form, in-depth interviews about people's politics, about their aesthetics, about their art practices, um, about their personal histories in ways that can be really moving um and the hope is that it's interesting for scholars but that it's interesting for designers like if you're a person who wants to make games from a marginalized perspective like here are 25 people who are awesome who can talk about how they've done that we hope you enjoyed this episode of keywords in play for more great ideas around games check out criticaldistance.com or take a dive into the Digra archives at digra.org.